All right, by a show of hands, if your church normally has a Christmas Eve service, please raise your hand. Christmas Eve. Look around, brothers. Christmas Eve. The majority of you, hands down. If your church normally has a Good Friday service, please raise your hand. Good Friday church service seems like most of us. Please raise your hand if 40 days after Easter Sunday, your church on Thursday has an Ascension Day service. Look around, brothers. Brothers, we might be seeing a sign of a problem. Might. Emphasize might. I'm not telling you you need to do this. I'll raise my hand and admit we do not have an Ascension Day service 40 days after Easter. But it's interesting, isn't it? Why do you do Christmas Eve? Why do you do Good Friday? Well, we don't follow the church calendar. Why do you do those? And not Ascension Day. Brothers, we might have a problem. The Ascension of Jesus Christ was said in the early 1900s by a well-known theologian that we don't respect, but he was important. The Ascension was a story made up by elves. That set the trajectory for the next hundred years of theology. Since then, 50 years later, John Gordon Davies, in one of his well-known lectures, said, of all the articles in the Apostles' Creed, there is none that has been more neglected in the present century than that which affirms the Lord's ascension into heaven. Fast forward 50 years later, in one of the best theological treatments on ascension, Douglas Farrow writes, it is remarkable how little mention Christ's ascension gets these days. Once it was seen as the climax of Christ's works, each year it used to be the crown of the Christian festivals. Today, it's an embarrassment. Maybe you've heard of Michael Horton, respected brother in our circles. He's written a bit on this topic and said, Most Protestants treat the ascension as little more than a dazzling exclamation point for the resurrection of Jesus rather than a new event in its own right. Brothers, we might have a problem. We might have overlooked one of the essential creedal doctrines of Jesus Christ, his ascension, or as I'll say, his continued incarnation, Christ the ascended incarnate one. I decided to do my own research These quotations I just read to you came to my attention five years ago, summer of 2017. It's pretty life-transforming. I realized, as I did my own soul-searching, my sermons regularly did not include Jesus' resurrection and then ascension when I preached the gospel. I'll be the first to confess that I then looked at my own church and started asking them, just kind of arbitrarily, Do they neglect the ascension? So I need to figure out a way to ask them without asking them. Hey, do you neglect the ascension? So I said, could you summarize for me what you think the five things Jesus accomplished? Like, what what did Jesus do that was important? Can you think of just five things that in the life of Christ he did in the past tense? Already done. What did he do? I got three answers from every single person I asked this question, I probably did this about 40 sometimes over the course of 2017 with members of my church. I would get his birth. I would get his death on the cross. 
I would get his resurrection from the dead, and all of the times I asked this question, I was thankful for those three answers, that nobody missed those three. But I started realizing that no one said the ascension of Jesus to the Father's right hand, not a single one of my church members. In addition to that, the answers after that were kind of a, who knows, some of his miracles, initiating the Lord's Supper, his baptism, his transfiguration. Brothers Embassy Church had a problem. We overlooked, neglected, and forgot that the ascension of Jesus Christ is not a dazzling exclamation point. It is an essential element of the gospel. And one of my corrections over the last five years has been trying to encourage our church not just to have an Ascension Day service, but to know the Apostles' Creed. I propose that if you don't have a top five of what Jesus did in the past tense, it's a good place to start. Jesus was born, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. Secondly, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, and died. Third, he descended. He was buried and descended to the dead. Fourth, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And fifth, he ascended into heaven. Past tense, five things. There you go. There's my top five for you. I didn't make it up. But what's great about the ascension of Jesus Christ is that in the Apostles' Creed, it becomes the gap between what Christ did in the past and what he is going to do in the future and what he is doing right now. Probably my favorite quote in all of my research on Christ's ascension is from Peter Orr in his excellent little book on the ascension. And he says at the very first chapter, first page, most Christians think about what Jesus did in the past. And most Christians are really fascinated about what he's going to do in the future, but far too little do Christians think about what he's doing right now. Brothers, we might have a problem. Far too many of us think far too little about where Jesus is, what he's doing right now, the body that he currently has right now. The incarnation did not happen in the past. It is happening right now and forever, Jesus will be wed to that glorified, resurrected body. So as you hear that today's message is Christ incarnate, did your mind quickly jump and think, oh, we're going to hear about Christmas. We're going to hear about when God became man. It's worth thinking about. But apparently all of us do Christmas services every year, so I'm taking us to Ascension Day. I'm taking us to the thought of meditating on not just that God became man, that heaven came down to earth, but that through Christ's ascension to heaven, the incarnation of the Son of God is still happening, and it's worth pondering how earth has gone into heaven. It's the flip side. One of my favorite quotes is from John Duncan and says, right now the dust of earth is sitting on the throne of heaven. Have you thought about this? Have you meditated and pondered and just looked, gazed at the reality that a part of us, humanity, earth, broke through the boundary and is in heaven now, and Jesus Christ has gone where I believe no human has gone before? I know about Enoch. I know all about Elijah. But these brothers did not have a resurrected body, and they are not at the right hand of the Father. So I mean it as He has gone 
where no human has gone before. He has blazed a trail. He has become our forerunner. He is the author and the perfecter and the one who will finish our faith because his incarnate body remains. That's all my introduction. We got a problem. So I want to give you three correctives. Common misconceptions regarding Christ's continued incarnation. I'm going to get them from 1 Corinthians 15. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to try and help us correct the problem. 1 Corinthians 15. Why did I choose 1 Corinthians 15? I mean, we could choose a lot. Once you start having your eyes open to the fact that Jesus Christ ascended to heaven and that this is actually a part of the gospel, you'll reread your New Testament and say, whoa, it's everywhere. Here's one of those places. And I chose this text in part because 1 Corinthians 15 is one of your classic passages that people will go to to say, hey, what's, what's the gospel? From the New Testament, give me a summary, what's the gospel? And when I was working on this project of thinking about the ascension, I remember one time talking about how I think it's critical. I've already laid that out in my intro. But does the Bible think it's critical? Does the Bible make it central? And one of my friends said this. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, when we get the summary of the gospel, it's just he rose again from the dead and appeared to 500 brothers. Corrective number one. Don't just read a few verses and stop reading. Corrective number one. Do not stop preaching the gospel and end with the resurrection. Now, little quick caveat. I'm not trying to be the ascension police. Brothers, if I come and listen to your preaching online or, or, or sit at your church or have you come to embassy and you preach that Jesus Christ died for our sins and appeal for people to repent of their sin and put their trust in Jesus, I'm going to just say a hearty amen. And maybe at some point I'll take you aside and be like, hey, get him up to heaven. But have you ever heard somebody say, hey, he didn't just die, he rose again. Preach the resurrection. I'm saying it's, it's one more link up. It's one more step up. There's one more event that's actually in our creedal formulas. So don't stop reading 1 Corinthians 15. Don't stop preaching the gospel of Christ's resurrection with just, he died in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again. He appeared. And that's the end. That's not the end of 1 Corinthians 15. And so let's look at that together. I'm going to read for us um, the passage starting in verse 1, and then hopefully point out why we should keep reading the text. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then 
It was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now we're going to pause here, but I hope you already started to see it. It didn't end with the resurrection. There's this idea of reigning and ruling at the Father's hand. And what did we see last night? All enemies under the feet of the Lord that David said, the Lord said to my Lord, put your enemies under my feet. And we see 1 Corinthians 15 telling you that because of his death, in accordance with the scriptures, because of his burial to the dead, because of his resurrection from the dead, we have hope and we are not to be pitied. And because of his ascension to the heavens, he has been enthroned as the ruler and the one who reigns over all. So brothers, let's not stop when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ by cutting short what the scriptures clearly and plainly teach. It's not just that he rose again from the dead. It's that he took his rightful place. He returned to the Father. And I think you could get that from a dozen of different places. What's Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2? None other than his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And he quotes Psalm 110. Same passage we're kind of thinking about here. So if you want to say, hey, what's What's a great place to summarize the gospel? How about the first ever sermon after the day of Pentecost from Peter? And see if you can't help but get to the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension from that first sermon. And see it as almost like that's kind of a big deal of the whole sermon. Or how about that beautiful Christological hymn in Philippians chapter 2? The descent of God from heaven, the pre-incarnate one, the eternal son of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself. And then he took on the form of a human. He, he became a servant. And then he humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. Is that the end? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him and bestowed upon him the name above all names so that it, 
the name of Jesus in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. Brothers, it's, it's all over the creedal formulas. It is all over the New Testament summaries. It's the early sermons. Jesus Christ reigns. You know how at Easter we say, He is risen. I think we need to come up with a new one. I don't know what it is, but something about like, He is reigning. He is reigning indeed. Something. Brothers, we've got a problem, and I think we need to make sure we don't stop at the resurrection. We need to take our stand on this gospel. We need to preach it. Verse 1 says, remind you of this gospel. You need to be reminded. Because sometimes you might realize, oh wait, there might be a little element of that gospel that I've kind of overlooked. So let me remind you that this part of the gospel for some of us is like a chain of salvation. And you might have a weak link individually or corporately in your church. Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, the plan of God. He appeared. He rose again. As the Father prophesied, all of God's plans coming through the Son, not just dying, rising, but taking on His place at God's right hand. So this is the gospel. Verse 22 talks about this contrast between Adam and that Jesus Christ being the first fruits of the new creation. So in Adam all die, for in Christ all will be made alive. As the king, he came to destroy every rule and every authority and every power and deliver them to God the Father. And then that all-important word in verse 24, then comes the end, as in the telos. That's the word there, the end, the end goal, the end of the race, the end of maturity, the fullness, the completion. You could translate it all those possible ways. The end is when Jesus Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority of, the God, of, of, of power. That's the end. That's the point. Not just to die and rise again, but to conquer as Christus Victor, as ruler, to reign as a human. That God and man would be together dwelling, the Son of God being fully Man, fully God, is the perfect encapsulation of God's plan from creation from the beginning. God and man dwelling together. What is Jesus Christ other than God and man dwelling together? Heaven and earth, all in one human body. And that's why I think it's marvelous for us to think about the continuation of this incarnation. That Jesus is the God-man And he will forever reign with God over all the earth. But our union with him, first fruits, meaning we're coming next. Meaning your resurrection. Your ascending from the grave and then being united with him. So much of our doctrine of the union with Jesus Christ is related to his heavenly ascension. And his not giving up his earthly body. So first... Don't skip over, don't neglect, don't stop short, don't stop reading. Realize that the gospel story and its end goal is about getting a human being to reign with God, which is the whole goal of the Bible from Genesis 1 in the first place. Second corrective, don't assume that Christ beside you would be better than Christ above you or in you. Too many people think that John 16 and Jesus' words, it would be better if I leave, isn't really true. I mean, we know that he said it, but I don't think we really believe it. We think it's a bad strategy. Let's say tomorrow's the championship game, 
and you're the Green Bay Packers, and you just somehow managed to make it to the championship game. And then all of a sudden we're like, hey, Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers, quarterback, let's just bench him. Let's have him depart. That's what a lot of people think the ascension is. The best player on our team, the best human that's ever walked this earth, just when things started to get good, Acts chapter 1, they're like, is now the time, Jesus? Oh, brothers, if you only knew. Are you so slow of heart? Jesus' absence, for too many of us, seems like a bad idea and a bad strategy. But just from gleaning what we've already read from 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and did not put an end to every enemy and have rule and reign over every single enemy underneath of his feet, then him beside you right now would be bad news. It would be bad news because death would reign and Jesus' kingdom would be impotent. It would not have all things subjected underneath them, especially the greatest enemy, death itself. So remind yourself that his absence, his lack of being right next to you, means that his spirit in you, his presence spiritually with us, is a great reminder of the already but not yet reality of Christ's kingdom. Already now, he's resurrected. Already now, there's first fruits. Already now, he's in heaven. It's, it's marvelous to think. A human's in heaven. Already now. We don't have to wonder, is this going to happen? It already started happening. And so that's good news, but it's even better news that already now, he is absent sent the Spirit, and that there is a plan to put an end once and for all to death. So if you have a new king come in and be empowered, and the king doesn't really change much, your excitement about this new king's reign and rule, it starts to fade real quickly. And when your wife dies, and your kid gets leukemia, and you deal with death after death in your church, and you think, But Jesus, he's supposed to be reigning. And he's with you that whole time just watching? That's not good news. His absence declares that death right now still reigns. This is the way the writer of Hebrews uses the same text from Psalm chapter 8 to say, at this time we don't see all things subjected under his feet. There still is death. So realize that this paradox of his presence and his absence, his physical presence that the incarnate Christ is incarnate still, but physically absent and spiritually present, does in fact create an important category for you to have hope at your next funeral. This isn't the end. There's hope. How do you know? I'm fixing my eyes on the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's alive. He's wearing human flesh. Earth has gone into heaven. So when we bury the bodies into the ground, we know, as Paul's about to say, that's just a seed. And it will be raised much, much more glorious. So this is why theologians say that the ascended Lord, because He is incarnate, He is not everywhere, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, He is accessible everywhere. He's spatially limited to His fleshly body, 
But he is in heaven accessible to all of us everywhere to comfort us, encourage us, strengthen us, and remind us. It's like that king. He's been announced as the new king. He's going to rule. He's not come in yet to the kingdom to establish his reign. But he's sending messengers. He's sending himself, his spirit, and telling you, don't, don't be too disappointed. The Bible's promises are yes and amen. And the greatest problem of all, death itself, it will be undone. So this is why I think Paul's talking about Adam and Eve, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. The original purpose of humanity was for us to rule, co-rule, vice-regents. God the great king works together with humanity in a covenant relationship. And that we should rule over heaven and earth with him. But as we know, death came into the world. You all, you've chosen your own way. You want to be your own ruler. You don't want a sovereign king that you subject yourself to. You want to be the king. Brothers, this sin, the wages of this sin is death. And therefore, we cannot co-rule with God. The original plan of creation has been marred. Death and sin need to be dealt with. And I believe it is his physical absence, him above us, his spiritual presence, already now transforming us and renewing us until that day when all of his enemies are under his feet. This is good news. This is helpful. So don't assume that Jesus beside you is better than Jesus above you, or even better yet, in you. Number three, don't misunderstand Paul here. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to start talking, and we're going to read this next little section. Spiritual bodies does not mean spirits. Don't misunderstand Paul here. Spiritual bodies does not mean spirit bodies. The goal of the gospel is for us to be like Jesus Christ. And if you fix your eyes on him, where is he right now? What is he doing right now? In what way is he existing? Meditate deeply on the ascension and you'll realize that he is a human, not a spirit. When someone dies, immediately we're fixated on, oh, they're in a better place with Jesus. That's a very important thing to think about. I'm not going to get into the details of it. Here's the point. You know what's the better place? Not what happens when somebody dies in that immediate, intermediate state, but when they're raised. I wonder if maybe that's something we need to kind of switch in our evangelical gospel presentations. Now, if you were to die, what would God say to you? In your spirit form? In your soul? How about when God raises your dead body from the grave, what would he say to you then? He would start putting a lot more material around the image and not think that we're off in some cloud land some spirit ghost form, imagining that we're going to play harps and bounce around clouds and all these kind of cartoon pictures that we sometimes get from the regular world, but adopted in our own thinking. Yeah, what happens when you die? How about what happens when you're raised? Have you thought about that? What if that was the question you asked somebody that was a lost person? Do you know that after you die, you're going to be raised? What's God going to say to you in your resurrected body then? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Drop down to 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown is in dishonor and what is raised is in glory. It is sown in weakness and it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. 
If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The goal of the gospel is not for you to die and your spirit soul to float up into a non-material, non-earthly existence and live forever and eternity in heaven. The goal of the gospel is that your dead body would be raised by the power of the Holy Spirit and live forever in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the confusing part that sometimes we read on the surface and we misunderstand Paul. So I'm telling you, don't misunderstand Paul. The adjective spiritual here does not mean spirit versus physical form. This is not an adjective of essence. This is an adjective of power. He is contrasting a fleshly, sin-cursed body with a spirit-filled, material, corporal body, but empowered by the Spirit of God. Natural bodies are those that have the desires of your sinful flesh. Spiritual bodies are those that are powered by God himself. One day I was taking my son out on a little date. We do mom and dad dates. We try and, try and do it on Wednesdays. So it's a Wednesday. I have a seven-year-old boy, and it was in the summer, and we wanted to go paddle boating. You guys know those? Paddle boats? Kind of use your feet. I don't really enjoy it, but my kid wanted to do it, you know? So I got long legs. He's seven. He can't reach it. So you know what we're doing? We're just paddling around in circles, you know? We're just basically getting nowhere. I think this is the sinful flesh. I I think this is life in this temporal world. There's your picture. Now, what if we instead went out on Lake Michigan and we rented out a speedboat. That's the contrast between the two types of bodies that are being described. One of them is a boat, and it's powered by humans, and it's futile, and it's getting nowhere. It's just running around in circles. The other one is a boat. I didn't say airplane. I didn't say automobile. We're not talking about a different category. I didn't say we're going to start flying in the sky and jump off of Willis Tower or something. John, we're going to go on a date, and we're going to ride a boat. But this boat is going to have two big, massive engines on the back, and we're going to go 70 miles an hour. That's the difference. One of them, futile, human-powered, fleshly, other, incorruptible. By a thousand times better than my silly illustration, your body will be empowered by the Spirit. That's the contrast. That's how the adjective works. If you want to win the race, if you would like to achieve the prize, then rely on the Spirit of God to empower you now already, but look eagerly, waiting for the day when you will be raised from the dead and be freed from all of this futility of this sinful flesh. Salvation does not make us something other than human. 
Rather, Jesus' ascension to heaven teaches us we will be truer humans. The humans we were always meant to be. So make sure you don't misunderstand Paul and think that he's making a contrast between current human existence and some sort of new spiritual category that does not look very human at all. Don't you remember in all of Jesus' resurrection appearances, nobody was like, oh my, you look like an alien. They thought he was a gardener at one point. Just another guy walking down the road on the road to Emmaus. He was a human, a glorified one, albeit. A different human, similar yet different. Categorically similar, qualitatively superior. This is the gospel, and Jesus Christ is the first fruits. His ascended incarnate state should remind you every day when you think, I wonder what Jesus is doing right now. He's enjoying the body that he will have for all of eternity. So, what does this mean for us? I want to give you two little takeaways, two little encouragements that have really encouraged my heart. Number one, Jesus' continued incarnation in his ascension encourages us with number one, creation's good. Do you remember the way Genesis chapter 1, 31 ends? It's very good. If Jesus' resurrection from the dead and permanent incarnate state is not an affirmation, the ultimate affirmation of your bodily existence, then I don't know what else is. Brothers, your body, even in its sinful flesh state, it points to some goodness of God's design. There's some good things about it. Eating, drinking, bacon plate this morning, it's good. You can enjoy it. New covenant, baby. You can enjoy it. To the glory of God. Filled with the spirit of thanksgiving. Filled with the spirit of gratitude and humility and generosity and prayer for those that couldn't eat this morning. Filled with a different kind of spirit of eating and drinking. Not one that lives to just fill their stomach. Not one that's watching what they eat because this temple is all that they have. And they don't realize that there's another one coming that will far surpass. Brothers, some of us are a little too lazy and idle with our bodies. And some of you are too obsessed with diet and exercise that it's an idol. Are you idol or are you idol? Are you looking too much at this temporary present body? Or are you looking at it as like, it doesn't matter, it's all just going to burn up? It does matter. Get used to it. Maybe not in the current exact form and state, but something to what you look like now, I don't know, it's going to have some kind of similarity. Get used to being a human. It's good. It's very good. Jesus is human. Set your eyes on things above and see Christ continually in his form, God and man. Second, we should warn human rulers of the human king. This was one of those parts of the study of the ascension that I just didn't expect to come across. And so I'm just going to read a little section and close you out with this quotation. You want to know how overlooked the ascension is? This book is phenomenal. It's out of print. Nobody wants to buy this anymore because we don't care about the ascension. But here's one little nugget that when I read this, I was like, that'll preach. So I'm just going to read it. Doug Farrow notes that when we spiritualize Jesus Christ's ascension and safely get Jesus diffused and dissolved into the heavens, 
Well, that gospel no longer seems a threat to the rulers of this world. So we can neatly divide the regions of authority between those spiritual matters and worldly matters. We can start building walls between the public and private truth which protects us from the claims of God. A spiritualized Jesus will allow the kings and governments of this world to run free without any restraint from the church and allows the church to run after the things of the world without the downdraft pressure of the return of the incarnate Son of God. The continuation of Christ's incarnation, however, enthrones Jesus in direct relation to the world and all of its human rulers. Right now, there is a real human king reigning over the world from heaven. A man who once walked among us is now on the throne, and he is not aloof to all of the affairs in the realm below. All other powers on earth, therefore, are only merely temporary and derived, as Paul says in Romans 13.1. There is no authority except that which God has established. This, then, is truly a threatening message to any human who will claim their own sovereignty. It is no wonder that earthly rulers wish to silence the church with their violence. As Doug Farrow again asserts, that by the ascension, the rulers of this world are deprived of their direct authority. They render service as a provisional government ruler waiting for the true king to appear. Jesus in ascending is crown and king, the sovereign of this world. Take note, President Biden. Take note, Queen of England, King of England. Take note. He is not aloof. He's human. He cares about human affairs. In church, we get to proclaim a gospel of the true reality of humanity from God's whole counsel. So let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise, and we do so in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his descending from heaven, becoming a man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you for his perfect, sacrificial, substitutionary life, the life that we have never lived. In complete submission and accordance with your will, every word he said proceeded from your will. We thank you, God, for his substitutionary death on a cross. We thank you, God, that the wrath of God has been absorbed. Your punishment for sins has been satisfied. And that his death was a real death. That his baptism that he underwent was the full extent of being buried in the tomb. God, we praise you that Jesus Christ three days later was raised he is risen, he is risen indeed, and that he reigns now as our king, as our high priest, as our intercessor. And we want to just pray that through your Holy Spirit, it would fall afresh on us and that our eyes would be opened to the beauty of the gospel and maybe an aspect of it that needs a little more attention. Lord, we pray that we would have hope and that we would have boldness, and that we would be strengthened because we meditated on your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.